So we'll continue today in this epic tale. Our life is an epic tale. And today we're actually going to talk about the the beginning of this journey. Now, it's kind of odd that we would talk about the journey so much and only now be talking about the beginning. But I'll tell you why that is in a moment. And it has to do with how difficult it is to grasp this beginning concept that really makes this journey possible. We've talked about that our life is an epic tale. We're in this adventure, this snow white adventure, where humanity has become dwarfed and lives in a scary forest. And we, as the rightful rulers of all creation, as God has made us, have been exiled from the way the world's supposed to be. And we're living in the scary forest with the dwarfs and our basic decision is whether we can cook and sew and, and serve the dwarfs or just uh, basically despair or go on and live our own life or even become evil and try to control things ourselves. Of course, what we're waiting for is the handsome prince to come and rescue us, which is something that we look forward to in the future. And all these stories that we love, the reason we love them is because we're living them. Of course, what God wants us to do is be the hero or the heroine in this story. And just like Cinderella or or Sleeping Beauty or Snow White or any of the Disney princesses or Aragorn and Frodo and the various uh, adventure motifs, uh, Prince Kor and the Horse and His Boy, one of C.S. Lewis's books, what, what God wants us to do is live a life of great character in the face of opposition. That's how we that's how we get become fulfilled. And as we go through life and we go through these different terrains, we go through valleys like Job did. And that's very difficult. But it's an opportunity to know God by faith, which is our greatest opportunity in life. Uh, we go through the everyday, the planes of everydayness which we tend to think of as mundane, but that's really where most of life is lived and where our biggest opportunity to know God by faith. It's much more difficult to be faithful in the mundane than it is when you know there's a crisis. And then, of course, you have the mountaintops, which can be the most difficult of all because it's in the mountaintops that we tend to grab and possess this experience instead of doing what Peter experienced, as we looked at, is... He had the mountaintop experience of the transfiguration because he followed Jesus up the mountain, not because he was seeking the experience. And what he learned is, keep following Jesus even when he comes down from the mountain. So it's difficult to maintain a life of faith all throughout all these different terrains. But this journey has a beginning point. And the beginning point for the Christian journey is difficult to discuss. I think the reason it's difficult to discuss is because it speaks to our deepest need as humans. And this need is so huge and so deep that we don't think about it. And I think often we don't want to think about it. So this is, this is a difficult th- concept. It's also something that we tend to not think about because we take for granted that we already understand it. Blaise Pascal, the famous scientist, was also a really devout believer. 
And he said this, There is in every person an infinite abyss that can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God Himself. And this is the human condition that we have this immense and inexhaustible need for love. The reason why this gets so complicated is because we also have a deep desire because we're, we're living exile from the garden in a dwarfed condition. Uh, we also have this huge need to be in control. And so, what we tend to do is try to get this infinite abyss filled in such a way that we feel like we're in control of it. Which, of course, is madness. But it doesn't stop us from trying. A friend of mine is a communications expert, and I asked him to engage with a seminary I'm associated with, Grace School of Theology, and and help them with some of their communications work. And... uh, He told me afterwards of his experience. And he said that I had told him, which I didn't remember actually, I'd told him, well, talk to Dave Anderson for 10 minutes, and if if you don't get what this is about, then don't spend any time on it. And so he talked to Dave, and he actually helped Grace School of Theology come up with a a short statement about what the school is about. And it's something like this, spreading the love of God, a love that cannot be earned and cannot be lost. It's a pretty good description. This fellow uh, friend of mine told his story. And it turns out that he had believed in biblical values all of his life, but he had actually not believed the message of the Bible. And he was all the way into his 40s, and only seven years ago or so, and he finally came to faith in Christ. He said a lot of people ask him, what stood in the way? What took you so long? He said, well, what stood in the way was mainly Christians. And they said, well, what what helped you overcome that? Christians. Uh, (laughs) And he he said when he came to faith, he had this gnawing feeling that he just needed to do more. Somehow he needed to do more. I mean, here's God who has sacrificed his only son and you know how how can you not look at that and say there must be something I can do, there there must be some way I can be better for this great God. And then he talked to Dave, who told him actually there's nothing you can do. <laughs> what you what you can do is believe that God has genuinely and truly accepted you, just because He wants to. And this fellow said, uh, you know, it made me think of my dad. My dad and I have a great relationship, and, I, and my dad's hard on me. But the one thing I know about my dad is he would never not want my best. And of course God would be that way. Now, unfortunately, many, perhaps most of us, don't have a father figure like that. A large percentage of humanity has an absent father or a, an abusive father. Or ten fathers figures, and and none of them worth uh, worth copying. Uh, fortunately, this guy had had something to look at that said, "Oh, that must be what God's like." But the reality of the beginning place for this great adventure, where we are to live as a heroic king or queen to be, 
living our values in a, in a dark world and being a light, laying down our life, the beginning place for that is to accept the love of God, the grace of God. It's so difficult for us. I like Maslow's pyramid of hierarchy of needs. I think he had made a very excellent observation. Here's basically what he said. He said people start with kind of their base need, and once that's met, they don't even think about it anymore. They don't even think about it. They just look at the next need up. And they seek to have that next need fulfilled. Boy, and I think it's a pretty astute observation. Basically, the bottom layer, or layers, the way he set it out, are physical needs. You know, if you're underwater and can't breathe, you stop thinking about what everybody thinks of you, or what your daytimer looks like tomorrow, or any other thing that you happen to care about, and you just think about one thing. I need a breath of air. But if you're not drowning for air you don't even think about breathing I don't know how many times you will breathe today but I'll bet you not one time will you say thank you God for air it's so amazing that I can breathe just think about what's happening oxygen is going into my lungs and then it's and then it's transferring into the alveoli and going into my blood and then going over to where the mitochondria are and then having a, 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 a reaction like a fire and it's releasing energy and the energy is going into my body and, and it makes me live. Isn't it wonderful? You, we just don't think about that. What we're, what we're thinking about is, well, why is that person looking at me like that? And the reason we're thinking about that is because the next, the next thing up is belonging. Acceptance. We have to be accepted. And frankly, I think this is where most of humanity lives most of the time. And unfortunately, in our world, most human structures are set up to offer belonging on a conditional basis. You can be part of us so long as you. Now, on the one hand, it's very sick because... This enormous need that we have, this infinite abyss that only God can fill, we're now filling with something that's just temporary. We can never, we can never have that need met. And so we're going to go all through life with this need unmet, one of our most basic driving forces. Very sad. On the other hand, sadly, we prefer it this way. Because... If it's conditional, then who controls it? Or who do we think controls it? We think we do. And so we're stuck in this world where we're living in order to manipulate someone else's acceptance so that we can have this belonging need met. It's the two ticks and no dog way of living. It's just really sad. It's sick. And we can find all kinds of groups that function this way. Gangs are this way. Cliques are this way. Uh, Social clubs can be this way. Church could be this way. Even family can be this way. And in fact, a lot of families are this way. A guy told me one time, he, I was asking him about his particular culture and he and, and there's a, there was a particular stereotype about mothers in this culture and he said, yeah. Yeah, he said, actually it's Pretty much that way. There was a 
a statue that expresses it well. Here is so-and-so person, philanthropist, philosopher, community leader, and still a disappointment to his mother. Because moms tend toward this way. You know, I, I will accept you so long as you. And, and this, this, this tends to get expressed certain ways as like, after all I've done for you. All of us are susceptible to this. But that's not the way God is. God accepts us the way we are in spite of our dwarf's condition, in spite of all our warts, and He gives us this new birth unconditionally at the point in time that it's given and without condition for the rest of our lives. That's a hard thing to accept. It's hard for two reasons. One is... We don't have any experience to tell us what that looks like generally. And the other is, we have to admit we're not in control. Now, it happens to be reality. And trying to control the universe is a pretty heavy burden to bear. But for some reason, we tend to prefer that illusion. But this is the very starting point for this great adventure. You really can't live a Cinderella or Aragorn-type life where you live a transcendent set of values in the face of darkness without this foundation of accepting God's grace. Now let me talk about this word grace for a minute. We tend to define grace as God's unmerited favor. And that's okay, but let me me just add some breadth to this lest we uh, trivialize it. The word grace that we find in Scripture is a translation of the Greek word charis, or charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And it's not always used in a way that just applies to God. For example, there's a verse that says, And Jesus grew, as a young man, in favor with God and man. Well, that's the word charis, in favor with God and man. So, man grants favor is too. And that's, that's actually what the word charis means. It means to grant favor. The reason why we say unmerited favor is because when God is granting the favor, we do not merit it, which is a very accurate observation. But that does not mean it's not merited because what does merit the favor of God? Jesus does. Yeah, so it's merited, but he has transposed the merit of Jesus onto us. But then you have other instances of charis. God gives charis, favor, grace, to the humble. Well, then that sounds conditional, doesn't it? If you're humble, you get that favor, and if you're not humble, you don't get that favor. It's a different application of the same word. But here's what's the same. Who gets to decide what the standard of humility is? Yeah, God does. What we tend to do is say, oh, God has to grant grace to the humble. I am humble because, one, two, three, four, five, therefore God must. What have we just done? We just put ourselves in control again, didn't we? And now God must. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. And when God judges, He will judge based on standards that He determines. 
And those standards are not external to God. They emanate from God. So God's grace is actually an expression of who God is. That makes it, on the one hand, a lot more comforting because there's not some set of rules that we have to live by. And that's what we tend to do to one another is set up rules that we can beat each other over the head with. But on the other hand, it's kind of disquieting because it's God Himself. And how do you know? Well, you've got to trust God. The greatest opportunity of this life is to know God by faith. And this is part of it. I don't know what God's going to say about me when I reach the judgment seat of Christ. I do know it will be for my best interest. And that is the fundamental foundation of living this life as an epic tale. Is to believe that God actually has our best interest at heart. Let's look at one of the most familiar stories of all the Bible... With this in mind, the prodigal son, it's Luke 15, 11. And it actually, probably this story would be better titled the prodigal father. Because the word prodigal just means excessive. And we're going to look at the two excessive sons. One was excessively legalistic. The other was excessively licentious. But it's overshadowed by this father who was excessively graceful and excessively loving. And that's the main focus we want to have today. Now, let's just look at the context here. Luke 15, 1. This is why Jesus is telling this story. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This word receives has the idea of waiting eagerly for someone. So, he like, in other words, he likes these people. Why does Jesus like these sinners and tax collectors? A tax collector would be a traitor to the Jewish nation. They'd be a political outcast. A sinner would be someone who has violated the Pharisaical laws. And the Pharisees and scribes, of course, would be Jesus' people. He comes from that group. They're the people who are educated in the law and say we should live the law, which Jesus says too. And so they complain. So he starts speaking these parables, the parable of the sheep and the lost coin and the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. So verse 11, Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Now, I'm not sure exactly what's going on here, but I'll give you my best take. This word livelihood is the Greek word bios. It's often translated life. So you've got multiple words that are translated life. Pesuke, where we get our word psyche from is used as life or soul. It's translated life about half the time and soul about half the time. And this is our essence of who we are as people, of our living being. And then zoe is translated as life, and it is the eternal life, like Jesus gives us eternal life. It's the quality of life you live, whether we have fulfillment or not. And bios is what we do as a, for a living to stay alive. Our function in society. So it appears here that what happened is 
we've got this family business, and in, in the Jewish culture, the family business would grow as the family grows. You see this all throughout the Bible, like if, uh, uh, who was it, Tamar was supposed to have uh, lost her husband and they're supposed to do the Levite marriage thing so she could have offspring. And Ruth was the same way. They're supposed to, the kindred, kinsman redeemer supposed to have offspring for her so that that family could have their land and possession perpetuated. And in, in both stories, there's a reluctance to perform that duty because they wanted the land for their heirs, not for this other group of uh, branch of the family. Well, uh, So what we're supposed to do here is keep the family together and grow the family business. And so this guy comes and says, I don't want to be part of this family business anymore. I want want my part for myself. So he gets it. And apparently what he does is he gathers up the sheep and whatever else and sells it and puts it into money and then goes off on a journey. So in not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there rose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, of course, there's nothing more disgusting to... uh, a Jewish listener than a pig. And the audience he's talking to here are mainly the Pharisees. So you got these Pharisees complaining about the sinners. And he's talking about, in this story, this, this Jewish fellow has, has violated his familial duty by asking for his uh, estate to be divided. And now he's gone off and joined himself to a non-Jew. And now he's feeding pigs. So you... You can't really go any lower on the social strata than this guy has gone in this story from a Jewish perspective. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, Well, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I'm perishing with hunger? So where is he on the Maslow Pyramid now? <laughs> so he's gotten down to the bottom. Sometimes that's what it takes for us to get some reality. And so he says, uh, I, I, would, I would prefer to eat and live. And so I'll arise, go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm oh, sorry, uh, heaven and before you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now this is very interesting here because in his mind, apparently being a son didn't have any value before because he basically left the family business and spit on his dad and said, following you doesn't matter anymore. Being with my brother doesn't matter anymore. And now he recognizes that he, he actually isn't worthy to be a son anymore. He's, he's squandered his sonship. But he would like to be full. So he rose and came to his father, and now we have the prodigal father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, if, if you're sitting here and you're a Pharisee, your mind is, is exploding here because a father who is the CEO of this, of this family business, first of all, doesn't run to greet somebody. You, you come to me. I don't come to you. So this is, a, this is a very undistinguished thing for this fellow to do. And not only that, 
He did it when he's a long way off. What does that tell you about this father? He's been watching. He's been waiting. He's been hoping. Now, as a little prelude here, it's important. He did not follow the prodigal son and nag him. Can I hear an amen to that? Okay. He let him go because that's what he wanted to do. But he was waiting for him to return, hoping he would return. And when he returns, he runs. And then he falls on him and kisses his neck before he hears the apology. And clearly this is God in the, pit, in, the, in the story. What does that tell you about God? He likes sinners. Not just loves. Okay, we know God loves the world. But you can love the world and still not like it, right? Don't you love people you don't like? Some people are not likable. Let's face it. But He likes them. Isn't that crazy? Now, why is that such good news? We tend to think, oh, wait a minute, somebody's going to get away with something. Why do we say that? We don't think we're sinners. We think we're above other people. Well, of course he would love like me. I'm likable. Mm. You know, if we're really honest, all of us are not likable some of the time. No, but he likes him. And and then the apology comes. The son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, was he still a son when he was off in the other country? Always. He was always a son. But what was broken? The fellowship. The fellowship was broken. Who broke it? The son did. What was the father doing? Please, please. I I need I need you for me to be glorified. Don't do that, oh please. No, he didn't do that. He went on with his life, but he's looking, waiting, hoping. And when he comes back, it's received immediately because he's his son. And this is the starting place. You know, when you go to the Disney two-minute Snow White adventure ride, the, the little cart goes about half a mile an hour. And they still make you put a seatbelt on. And this is our seatbelt. This is what allows us to go on this ride and take these daring adventures. Because we can't screw this part of it up. We're God's child because He chose us to be a child. He's the one that birthed us. Now, think about physical birth. We, we tend to say, well, God would not, would not violate our choice. Well, let's just think about physical birth. Did you choose which year to be born? What city to be born in? Which mom and dad to have? What house to grow up in? You, you know, most things in life we don't get to choose. I like to say we get to choose three things. Who we trust, the perspective we have, attitude, and the decisions we make on a daily basis to take action. That's really it. Nothing else in life we get to choose. You could decide uh, tomorrow, you know, I wish I'd never been born. Can you undo it now? 
You can stop living in this world, but you can't stop existing. God birthed us because He wanted to, and it's irrevocable. It's an irrevocable gift, just like physical birth. And He likes us. He wants to have fellowship with us. Think about, think about the Laodiceans. He says, uh, you guys think you're rich, but actually you're very poor. You think you're rich because you have a lot of money and rich clothes, but you're actually poor because you are spiritually poor. So what I want you to do is buy from me gold. Buy from me gold? Hey, buy gold from God. He tells us, I'm standing outside your door knocking with my voice. Please let me come in. Not beating the door down. Not blowing the door open with magic. Not nagging. Just asking to come in. If you will open the door and let me in and I can have a meal with you, then you'll be rich. You'll have as much gold as you can imagine. Well, the same kind of thing's happening here. They begin to be merry. Fellowship is restored. Now the Pharisees come into the picture. So we've got the prodigal father who has this amazing love for his children that cannot be exhausted and cannot be squandered. We can only squander the experience of the love. And we have the prodigal son who has taken all this amazing benefit that he got from his dad and he squandered it with prodigal living. And now we have the prodigal legalists. So now the Pharisees, the guys who, who uh, he's telling the story for, they enter the picture. So the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and said, What's going on in the house? What's the party for? And he said to him, Your brother's come, and because he's received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. So we're having a big party. And he was angry. Wouldn't go into the party. So his father came out. Now in this case, the father comes out and actually comes to the son. This is a son that has never left. So they still have a relationship. And he pleaded with him and he said, Come on in and celebrate the son. Return. And he answered to his father and said, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment one time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as the son of yours came, who's devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. What is just about that? You, you mean you're going to let this lowly sinner over here, you're going, to, you're going to accept him and love him? And me, who has kept all these rules, I, I do my devotion, I get up at 5.30 every day. And I do a 45-minute devotion. And you're going to let that guy have your love and not me? I went on three mission trips. I, 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 I've... I've, I've t- Gone door to door 17 times. Have 25 people come to Christ. I gave $1,700 to missions. And what have they done? And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. Now this is cool, isn't it? 
this guy's just as off as the other one. So he's living right there in the house. Why do you think he hadn't had a fatted calf? No need? You know, one of the things the Bible tells us is, you don't have because you didn't ask. You know, how many things do we, are we bitter at God for and we never even bothered to ask? But he, he says, Son, you're always with me and all I have is yours. See, this prodigal son came back and the relationship was restored, but the consequences remain. He didn't get his stuff back. It was sold. He lost his inheritance. We can squander our inheritance. We can squander our possession. God made us to be rulers with Him. He wants us to overcome so we can sit on the throne with Him. That's our destiny. But that can be squandered. But being His child cannot be squandered. See, if we can't make that distinction, we're going to be stuck in a place where we're doing everything we do to convince ourselves through other people that we belong to God. And we're going to miss the whole point of living to walk by faith and overcome so we can ascend to the point God intended for us to. All I have is yours. So here you got this prodigal legalist who doesn't even understand what he has. He's just serving and following the rules for apparently because he thinks he'll get something out of it. And he's missing out on what's really there, which is this phenomenal relationship with his dad. Well, all of us tend to fall into one of those two camps. I am a lot more like the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the ones that actually are getting waxed in this parable. So, I love this parable. Because it tells me that God's not going to spit me out for being a legalist. He likes me too. That which is great. God's a perfect parent. Now sin has consequences. The consequences are not going to go away. And just as an aside here, this is the way we should do our parenting or grandparenting or surrogate parenting. We should let people know there's nothing you can do that will not make me want what's best for you. Nothing. No matter how bad you are, no matter what you say to me, no matter how low you go in life, I will always want what's best for you. We've got to let people know that. Not only with our words, but our actions. But because I like you, not just love you, but because I love and like you, I'm going to tell you the truth about what's in your best interest. This father let the guy go. And he was destroying himself. He's always waiting for him to come back. That's amazingly powerful. Let's look at 2 Timothy 2. This one of the one of the great verses in the Bible about this topic. 2 Timothy 2. It's a little song here, 2.11. This is a faithful saying. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. This is a chiasm. This is the A in the chiasm. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. This is the B. If we deny him, he will deny us. That's the B too. 
And then the A is repeated. If we're faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. So the central point of this, actually, in 2 Timothy is written to a bunch of believers who are watching uh, Paul about to be martyred, and Paul wants them not to chicken out and to take the same path he's taken, which is the path of, of giving your life. That, that's the point of 2 Timothy. Don't chicken out. God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and discipline. Okay, Stay the course. And so the central point of this is, if we endure, we'll reign. If we don't endure, we won't. Okay, This son could have been a part of the family business and been elevated to the leadership in the family business, but he squandered it. So this is a conditional thing. But it's sandwiched by this seatbelt. If we die with Him, we shall live with Him. That's not conditional. It's unconditional. If we die with Him, if we're buried in in baptism with Him and raised to walk in newness of life, we cannot walk in newness of life and we will still live with Him. Why? Because if we're faithless, verse 13, He remains faithful. He can't deny Himself. See, we don't merit the grace of God, but Jesus does. And that has been transported onto us. And if God were then to reject us, He would be rejecting Himself. I know many of you have had loved ones that have strayed, perhaps have strayed to the point of of total self-destruction, partial self-destruction. All of us have done this to some extent or another. It doesn't matter how unfaithful we are We can't lose our seatbelt. We can't lose the fact that we were born into a spiritual walk as the son of the prodigal father. And this is the foundation for living a heroic life. Because on Maslow now, we can go to the next level. We don't have to worry about belonging and acceptance. God likes us. He does it because He's God. He chose to. We don't have to do anything to, to, to win that condition. So we can go on to where God really wants us to go, which is to focus on giving our life to walk in service to others so we can overcome as He overcame and sit down on the throne with Him. That's what He wants for us. And Maslow calls that kind of living transcendent, which means unexplainable. And it's unexplainable because now we're not dependent on what other people think. We're we're just acting on what God thinks in in the Christian version of this. I care about what God says, which is going to happen after this life. So it is an amazing tale, an epic tale that God has put us into. It is a, a fantastic journey with all kinds of terrain. Each kind of terrain has its own challenges, and each one is an opportunity to know this prodigal father by faith. But the foundation of it is, no matter how bad we mess up, our belonging, our acceptance is not conditional. Approval is conditional. God's not going to approve behavior that's not in our best interest, just like you wouldn't approve your child playing with razor blades. But we cannot out the love of God. 
And that gives us this amazing foundation from which we can actually live this epic life of heroism. God, thank you for your grace that it's rooted in who you are, not in anything we do. Thank you for this amazing foundation that if we're faithless, you're faithful because you can't deny yourself. God, I pray that you'll help us give up this sick notion that we control somehow things that we don't control. And instead, trust you that you actually like us and that you accept us because you chose to. And that just because of the death of Christ that we've appropriated, you've imposed upon us this amazing sonship, this amazing entrance into your family, and that that's something that you've given us unconditionally. Help us accept it. And now use that as a foundation to live the life you've given us to live, this life of a heroic adventure. In Jesus' name, amen.